There are great photographers everywhere, and for me, it's a special treat when a great photographer lives minutes from my home and I have the opportunity to interview them. But it's more than proximity that has led me to have Joel Grimes as a guest on the show. His images are exceptional, and no less so, because their style was born not from a huge spark of inspiration, but a way of contending with a physical limitation. But more than that, Joel Grimes is a photographer who can inspire anyone who wants to pick up a camera and lay claim to the title of photographer. Well, Joe, welcome to the Candid Frame. Thank you. It's it's so funny that you're so close to me. Yes. I mean, I've driven or walked by here so many times, and uh, it's kind of cool to, to 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 find somebody so close to home for a change. Well, good. <laughs> um, I was reading up about you, and one of the inspirations for you, which I found really interesting, was was classic painting. Yes. Um, and having recently. Been, I've been recently visiting some museums and was really amazed by how the painters used light, which I think is probably one of the things that really kind of draws you. Talk to us a little bit about, about those inspirations in terms of the painters who have really sort of informed the way that you see and you use light. Well, you know, I was in the fine arts. I graduated from the University of Arizona with a bachelor's degree in photography, but in the fine arts realm of things. And, you know, I couldn't get enough you know, classes of photography. I mean, I was just eating it all up. Of course, they make you take history and some of the uh, art history, but also some photo history classes. But it was the art history classes that at first I thought this is going to be kind of a bore. Um, And as I started going through, we started going through, we came to that Renaissance Baroque time period with the painters and started looking at how they started modeling uh, the face with light. Yeah. And and I remember just being mesmerized by that uh, that transition that happened with the painters and how they became these master, uh, really masters of light, and that really stuck with me. So think about this: I didn't have any formal training in lighting, say with strobes and you know the equipment coming out of the fine arts. So the first time that I got a strobe, and I had to create an image. And I had a roommate or studio mate who had a softbox. So what do you think the first thing I'm going to do <laughs> is emulate the cross light Rembrandt look? Yeah. And that's what began my whole career. And I did that cross light Rembrandt look for 25 years and shot ad campaigns. Well, first I started doing corporate work and then built my way up. But even when I was doing more of the national ad campaign, it was still that one cross light look. And I think having been able to know sort of where I wanted to go. I had, I had the vision of this is the end result that I wanted, which was the Rembrandt triangle cross light look. And then getting there, which I had to learn by trial and error. Okay. And then that sort of discipline has brought me to where I'm at today, which is more lights, but it's still the same discipline. It's taking some pieces of equipment and saying, where do I want to end up? And then I just take that equipment and work there. Yeah. And one of the beautiful things about your lighting, and I think um, the, the great things about some of these painters, uh, I was looking at the, some of the uh, Flemish painters, and it was fantastic. But one of the things that really struck me was they just don't just wash everything in light. They're striking this balance between light and shadow. 
that shadow is as, as important as the actual highlight in their paintings. And I see that a lot in your own work, that, that shadow, to a great extent, is really informing what you're doing as a photographer. Yes, it's the transition from, say, a highlighted area on the face to that shadow area. There's a transition. And it's mastering that transition that model it allows you to model the face. And I think that's not being taught. Because what we do is we, we typically say, I'm the expert in lighting. I'm going to show you how to light. And here's where you put the light. Mm-hmm. And it's not taught in terms of, well, why is that light there? You know, it may, you may say, this is, the, this is the name of the lighting, like Rembrandt Triangle or Rembrandt Crosslight. Right. But they don't, you don't explain why that's the case. Why did, did Rembrandt use that crosslight and the nose, the shape of the cheek, and everything to give that Rembrandt triangle. What was his purpose in it? Well, his purpose was to build depth, to build a mood and emotion that comes through on the face. It's still the Rembrandt cross light is probably still the greatest classic light out there. Yeah, and it has kind of lost a little bit of popularity because it was used so much. But I don't think it's ever going to go away. Yeah. As, as a kid, I heard that you like taking things apart. Oh, yeah. Is that kind of how you learned lighting, was taking a look at photographs and paintings and sort of taking them apart and sort of figuring them out? Or was it just a matter of just going out there and practicing and trying different things? Yeah, I think I'm curious. And, you know, the idea that what's in this little motor, you know, when, when my dad would leave a electric motor on the floor, I'd go over and I'd take it apart and see what's inside. It was just curious. Mm-hmm. And I think they thought I would be some kind of engineer, but I didn't have the academic grades to do that. <laughs> but uh, I was looking out the window. But, yeah, I think it's the being curious as to how something works. And I, what I like to do is problem solve. And so I think lighting is problem solving a little bit. And I think one of the things that the, mis- the biggest misconception that people have today is that they believe um, if you, say, take a picture and then you have a behind the scenes, okay? So they say, oh, this guy's using an Octobox, mm-hmm. okay? They believe that Octobox is what's creating that look. And really, yes, uh, a modifier plays its role, but it's not really so much the shape of the modifier. It's how big that modifier is in relationship to the subject. So... Once, when I teach, teach my lighting stuff, once I get across that it's the, the bigger, the, the, bigger the, the modifier or your source in relationship or distance to your subject, the softer or the harsher the light. That's the quality of light is being um, determined by that. Not the shape of the modifier. Yes, the shape of the modifier will give a little bit of influence in certain things. But, it, but we are really sort of swayed by octoboxes or beauty dishes or whatever. Yeah. And getting back to what you said earlier in terms of being aware of gradations of light, I think that for a large part, it's that whole idea that you get these certain products, you put them in a certain position and you'll get a good result. But you, you were saying earlier about being aware of that sort of gradation of light. Yes. And none of those books or videos ever really teach how to see Mm-mm. Because you don't use light meters. You're not no. using all these sort of ratios. You're really kind of eyeballing it on on what you're seeing in front of you and what you're seeing in, in the monitor. And I think that's really sort of testament to the importance of being so tuned in to what you're seeing at the moment 
that it allows you to create a real optimal photograph rather than looking at that stuff after you've already made the shot and looking at them as things that you have to refine and fix in Photoshop. I've made a statement, and it's a little bold, and maybe it's a little pushing it too far, but lighting is not a technical process. And yes, we have techniques, we have equipment that we're using, but really lighting or, or how I light a subject isn't an intuitive emotional feelings process. So when I have a, have someone in front of me and let's say I move my lights out and I say, okay, now you're, now let's have you move those lights in and kind of redo what I just did, say a three light approach. And at first they're a little nervous and they put the lights in position trying to match where I put them, right? They take a picture and we look at the back of the monitor where we're standing there and they go, did I get it right? And I say, well, that, why are you asking me? I said, I, I always say this, you're an artist. Do you, do you like what you have on the back of your monitor? And they go, no, it's too, it's too harsh. Okay. So how do we adjust that? We down the power, we move the, the lights in a little bit to soften them up. So I asked them, you approach your lighting to how you like it. What, yeah. what your intuition tell you? What does your intuition tell you? Because I'm an artist, you're an artist, we're different. And I may like country western music, you may like rap. And so if I'm trying to achieve country western, but I'm using the rap model, I'm going to have a hard time getting there. Yeah. And that gets to a question that I, w I meant to ask you was the whole idea that here you are sort of teaching your technique. You're showing people how you set up your lights, the kind of lights that you use, your process in terms of post-processing. But, you know, you don't strike me as a person who, who just wants to make duplicates of himself. No, you that'd know? be dangerous. Well, you can't do it. Yeah. But even if we could... It'd be dangerous because then pretty soon you got a whole bunch of clones of one person. And I have on my PowerPoint presentation, I have, you know, the, the, the name Ansel Adams come across and, and Henry Carter Brisson and Irving Penn. Mm -hmm. And I say, we only need one of each one of these people. We don't need 10 of them or a thousand of them. We only need one. The world only needs one of those. That's why they stood out. That's why they became the icons and, you know, are the history of photography is because they they went down their own path and and worked from their uniqueness became an individual and then we same thing with music music is a great arena in which we can kind of see how someone who maybe doesn't have the best voice or maybe even huge guitar skills mm -hmm. like bob dylan but he was a master poet with lyrics and he really rocked the world in terms of the influence that he had. But if you just listen to Bob Dylan right off face off, you go, this guy can't <laughs> sing, you know, but he made a big influence because he was one of a kind. And every time you would hear Bob Dylan on the radio, you knew it was Bob Dylan. There was no question about it. And I think the same thing has to happen with imagery is when you put an image up or someone sees an image and they say, that's an Ansel Adams image. You can pretty much tell that when mm. you see an Ansel Adams image. I think the best compliment anyone could ever give me, and sometimes I've been given this not as a compliment, <laughs> but they say, you know, I, I look at your image and I can tell it's you. And some people want to say, well, it's the same old image over and over again. And sometimes that happens. We as artists, we kind of repeat ourselves so much that it's like we've worn it out. Yeah. But in the end, though, it's still a great compliment for someone to say, I knew that was your picture before I saw the credit. People are learning your technique. You know, they, they see how you shoot the backgrounds with HDR, how you light the portraits with this particular lighting situation. But you're still you. So 
despite the fact that there are all these people emulating your technique, what does Joel Grimes bring to the table that allows you to create work that's still definitively you? You mean as as I'm teaching or as into the industry? No, I mean, because a lot of people used to be afraid to show their technique because they felt like, oh, all these people are going to copy me and then then they'll be my competition. But all those people can copy the technique to the cows come home and they never really sort of capture what the original photographer. So what is it? What what do you bring to the table? What is it about the way that you see or work or? Well, first of all, I'm colorblind. And I, I, I mean, I'm so colorblind that I went to buy a car and I told my wife I'm going to the dealership to buy a car. And I said, I want this gray uh, Toyota 4Runner. And I came back with a green one. And I've done that with clothes. I've mm-hmm. done that with things where I really am that colorblind. Okay. So um, the fact that I see the world differently because I'm colorblind is no secret. Okay. I mean, that's just the way it is. I'm colorblind. Yeah. Now, because of my colorblindness, when it comes to even just say the retouching side of things, there's a limit to what I can do in terms of color balancing something. So when I begin my techniques and the look that I have today that people kind of know me from, that's a combination of being really nervous about color balancing. So I took a color, a color version of that image and I made a duplicate black and white of it. And then I overlaid or soft-lighted the two images together to create this sort of desaturated, little bit edgy look, okay? And I went, I like it. Mm. And so it was because, partly because I was afraid that, you know, if I really try to fine-tune the color balance, I'm not going to be able to do that. And so I think it's my uniqueness in that being colorblind and, of course, the history of who I am and what I've been doing for 30, 40, 50 years has influenced what I do today um, to the point where I say, again, I'm one of a kind. There's only one of me on the planet. Just like I say to someone else, there's only one you on the planet. And so that uniqueness cannot be duplicated. And so if someone says, I want to be Joel Grimes, we can't because you're not colorblind or you don't have the history that I have or the experiences that I have or the passion of, say, going after a certain look. I love I love sports, sports athletes. And part of the reason is, is because they are heroes. And I love to make people larger than life. I'm drawn to that. You see a lot of my images. I don't have people laughing, having a great time. Mm -hmm. Well, it's not because I'm not a happy person or I don't like having a good time. It's just that when I'm creating an image, I want someone to look like the superhero. And so there I'm drawn to that look. Now I've got friends that have been in the industry that love that laugh, that moment, that throwing the head back, that tilt, you know, of the body or whatever. And they've created some amazing imagery. That's them. That's what they are looking for and going after. And so I can't be them. If I wanted to say I want to be, you know, someone else and try to now that I may be influenced and that influence may actually work within my favor, within my uniqueness and mm-hmm. create some images, but I can't be that person. Yeah. I think one of the things is why people, it scares them is this whole idea. If they're creating work that's very unique, they look out to see someone else is doing something similar to that, particularly someone who's making a living or has achieved a certain level of success. And when they don't see it, they doubt themselves. And so the tendency is to want to go out there and sort of duplicate what other people are doing because it seems like that's safe. Well, because if you take, let's say, and really work from your uniqueness, okay, and work down the path that fits you and you'd love, 
The problem with that is that's usually going to be a little bit different than the world. And that's a scary place to be because you put your, your neck on the chopping block. You're saying, this is what I love to do. And then you put it out there and people go, wow, that's a little bit unique. And well, you, you may have a group that says, oh, this is unbelievable. Mm-hmm. And then you have another group that says, hmm, I don't know, you're breaking some rules here. That's not, that's not right. Because when you break rules, there's a group that's always going to be against that. Um, but then there's a group that's going to uh, uh, say accept it because they're like dying to see something new. So you got two groups that are, are sort of influence you. But if you give in to the group that says, don't go down that path, you're going to, I think, it's going to kill your creative process. Well, the other part of, of achieving success is just the the, the, the work. I mean, you, you, you've written on your blog that hard work trumps talent. Yes. And I think the beginnings of your career are really a testament to that because you talk about the fact that you made over 3,000 cold calls and you know, took your portfolio to well over 200 different places to, to show the work. And I think, well, I know that the idea of picking up the phone and calling someone cold is terrifying. And it's so much easier to sit in front of the computer trying to refine your skills than it is to pick up the phone and, and do it. So what allowed you to be able to, to do it? Because so many people, even though they have an immense amount of talent and maybe a desire to do this for a living, can't pick up that phone to make their first call. I believe that the fear of rejection is the single greatest thing that keeps us from achieving our dreams as artists. And that goes over from musicians to actors to, to you know, in the arts, you know, like photographers. Because you put everything out on the line and you waiting for someone to sort of affirm that you're on the right track or we want, we want to hire you. And when that doesn't happen, oh, man, it's devastating. And so the fear rejection is a 100% guarantee or the rejection is a 100% guarantee it's going to happen. Okay. So when you go out and you knock on a door, the chances of them saying, oh, we love you. Come on in. We're going to hire you is a, a rare thing. So when I first started out, I had a portfolio, my very, very, very first portfolio showing. I worked really hard to get my portfolio together. I had a studio mate who went to Art Center, and he was a natural, gifted salesperson. I am not. I was not. I couldn't go next door to ask for a cup of sugar when my mom said, could you, you know, (laughs) go. I was just so shy. But with the help of my friend, Steve, who who, um, said, look, it's really a numbers game and you're going to be rejected. And, but at some point someone's going to say, we love you. Okay. And my first portfolio showing though, was a major rejection. And he, the, the art director got through three of my boards, four of my boards. And I had like 30 and he stopped and said, basically, I had just moved to Denver from Tucson. He said, basically go back to Tucson. And I walked out of there with, you know, a lump in my throat and, you know, my eyes watering and said, when I got back to my studio, I told my friend, I'm done. I can't do this. I was so distraught. And he said something to me. He said, you're going to let one person steal your dream. And I said, yes. (laughs) (laughs) So worked up. He said, and he kept repeating it. You're going to let one person steal your dream. And finally, I realized, no, I'm not going to let that one person steal my dream. Because I had a passion for for photography, and I really believed I could I could achieve you know something with that, and so it was the ability to say no, 
one person is not going to steal my dream. And the other thing, too, is when I walk into an ad agency and I have my portfolio and I, I maybe have done a little research, but it's impossible to do research 100 percent because you don't know who you're showing your book to. Really, they may ha- they may have the Gatorade account, but you don't really know what they're looking for at that moment. Even within that account, they may be looking for a super edgy, highly, you know, action picture. Yeah. Okay, And you work walking with all portraits. Okay. But so what I do is I say, look, I mentioned it before. I am peddling something. So we call it country western. Not that I like country western, but it's one part of a spectrum on the on the on this wheel of of options. And they may be looking for rap. Mm-hmm. Okay. And so when I walk in and I say, here's what I do, and they go, Oh, great, thanks. And then there's no response, no we want to hire you, I realize I am not presenting to them what they need. So after 10 portfolio showings, all of a sudden I walk in the door and I present my country western look, whatever it is, and I find someone looking for that. And they go, oh my gosh, you are, this is amazing. And they're literally rolling out the red carpet for you. You go, wait a minute, I just had 10 rejections in a row and I felt like quitting, but here... Someone loves me. Yeah, and I think it's important to remember because they're not looking at you as whether or not you're a great photographer or not. They're looking as whether or not you satisfy what they need at that particular moment. Exactly. Because they're looking at their own jobs, their own work, and they have their clients and their bosses to satisfy. So it's nothing personal. Exactly. But we as photographers take take it it personal. Yes. We internalize it. And I have a saying. I tell people, I want to give you a little bit of uh, insight to who you are. I say you are, and not, not just you, but every person on the planet is weak, fragile, and insecure. That's who we are. There are some of us look tougher, and we put on a facade, but in, deep inside, we're all very weak, fragile, insecure people. And I, I give this, uh, I tell people this. I said, you know, when you post, some, a lot of people post their work on Flickr or some kind of site where you mm-hmm. get a response back, say, uh, comments. And someone says, oh, my God, this is amazing. And the next comment, this is the best picture I've ever seen, blah, 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 blah. Praise, 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 praise. And then someone comes along and goes, I've seen this before. This sucks. I go, what comment do you remember? (laughs) Negative one. (laughs) Yes. And I said, you go to bed at night going, you know, and in fact, you even look up that person to see who they are because you want to validate whether or not. You know, or discredit them by saying they suck too, you know. But really what happens is we crumble when we have, have a, uh, a negative comment against what we do. And so I, I've taught myself to when, when I get those praises, I, you know, I say thank you, you know. And when, the, when the, cri- the criticism comes, I go, you know what? That person's a rap artist. I'm selling country western. Yeah. Well, one of the ways that you describe yourself is, is about being an artist. And I think the nature of most commercial and advertising shoots is sometimes they're they're looking for a hired gun. They have a sort of, uh, a, you know, they have a layout. They have a whatever. They're looking for someone to sort of be able to create create that. So how do you maintain your your creativity, your artistry, when someone is trying to create a very specific look for an ad or or something else? Well, first of all, what you hope is that they've looked at your work and they say, we want to hire this guy because, or he meets the, the requirements that we want in the photographer that we need for this campaign. 
So you hope that's the case. Then you have to recognize, too, that every job that I do, there's going to be a compromise because they're hiring me. Okay, so if I say I'm an artist, which I believe, and I promote myself as an artist, and I have for, for years, and looked at myself saying, you know, I am an artist, and you're, get, you're getting one of a kind. You know, that's the idea. You get, you get something that hopefully that not too many people can produce. But I have to recognize there's a compromise that's going to happen. And I can either stomp my feet, throw a few things, <laughs> and, you know, say, you hired me because I'm an artist, and by golly, you're going to fulfill the vision I have. Then I won't be, I don't think, I won't last very long in the industry. So I have to realize that there is a compromise that's going to take place. The other thing, too, is I also recognize that if I'm in the commercial arena and I'm shooting pictures every day, that, yes, I can produce and, and, and I'll have a few portfolio pieces that come out of that. But the chances are I'm not going to end up with a portfolio piece. The only way I'm going to get that is doing self-assignments. Because then I can have the freedom to do what I want and say, this is what I love, and I put it in my book. And I think my, my portfolio grows a lot quicker when I'm doing self-assignments. I try to do about one a week. And so I do about 50, 60. I end up with about 50, 60 new images a year to add to my portfolio. And so I recognize that, let's say I'm shooting for a client, and I'm getting frustrated because they're kind of dictating everything and changing yeah. everything. I realize that. Well, this weekend I'm going to have a model come in or a subject that I can do my own thing. So I just realized that I'm not going to, I'm going to have to do it on my own. And you really have to keep your promises to yourself to make that stuff happen because if you're working in a business, it's really easy to make everyone else's work the priority and not your own. So how do you, how do you ensure that you're getting out, you know, you're making that time to dedicate to those personal projects? Well, I love to watch football, but. Last year, I think I watched three football games. And over the last four years, I've watched maybe eight football games in, in all that time. I don't have time to watch football anymore because on Sunday afternoon, I'm creating images. So I have to, I have to make priorities and I have to set a, a, a things aside that I would love to do, but I can't because I'm trying to fulfill my vision as an artist and survive in the marketplace. Yeah. So that goes back to that saying, hard work will outperform talent any day of the week because um, I believe that it's that hard, hard work ethic and the ability to sacrifice, make sacrifices that really allow you to achieve the, the, the goals that you have. But I was talking to a friend of mine. He was a good shooter. He's been around a long time and he was looking at some of my work. He's like, wow, you know, where did you get, where was that shot? What job, what client was that for? I said, well, that was a self-assignment. Oh, then he, you know, asked another picture. I said, that's self-assignment, self-assignment, self-assignment. He goes, wait a minute. You know, how, how are you doing these self-assignments? I go, I don't I just make room. I said, I asked him, when's the last time you did a self-assignment? And he said, 10 years. So that's what I do is I realize how important the self-assignment is. And uh, that ability to create an image that's for me and the joy of that process. And then the result of looking at it either hanging on the wall or in my portfolio and I can say, that's me, that's, that's my vision. And then, again, it hopefully ups my game to where the art directors and the art buyers see it and say, this is what we want. Is, is your Desert Life Series part of a personal project? Yes. Now, that's a good example, and I use that in my, in my, my lectures because even though it's, you know, it doesn't have anything to do with people, it's all you know, landscape-type images, 
But basically, it was right before I started doing this three-edge kind of really sport-looking, you know, the images I'm doing, the edgy look now. But I, what I did was I just had some time, and I had thought of this idea of strobing, using a strobe outdoors with cactus, and using the Sunny 16 rule where you dock, make the sky darker and mm-hmm. strobe the, the foreground. And I've been doing that with people for years. And so I joked with my wife. I'd hand out the door with, you know, a couple you know, a, a strobe, a stand, and, you know, a camera, and a couple of triggers. And I say, I'm off to do a portrait of a cactus. <laughs> and, but I, what I did was I just said, okay, here's a series, and I go out in the desert, and a lot of times it was during the monsoons where I had these huge storms come in. And talk about an experience of just being out there with, you know, lightning going off in the distance and, you know, the storm, it's just in the smell of the rain and everything. It was just really beautiful. But I was creating images also. And I stuck with that and then did it for myself, produced this body of work, put it up on my website. And I was had the uh, editor, photo editor of Arizona Highways Magazine call me up for another project. He wanted to do a portrait. And I said, yeah, I'd love to do that portrait for you guys. And um, he said, oh, I love your cactus stuff. That's amazing. And I said, well, great. If you like it, run it. And I just said that jokingly because I really didn't. It was black and white. They don't do black and white. And um, what happened was he said, well, let me get back to you. And they came he, three days later. He called me up. And he said, got some good news for you. We're going to run a 12 page portfolio of your cactus and the cover. Wow. And he said, not only black and white. And he said, well, it's been 50 years since we had a black and white cover. And the last one was Ansel Adams. And so, wow. but here's the weird thing about that. I didn't create that for Arizona highways. I shot digital. And at the time, digital was still not accepted. Okay. In that magazine, not on a cover, especially I strobed them outdoors, strobing nature, never had, you know, run in that magazine, at least I stitched them. So I was doing multiple, um, you know, digital, but multiple stitching to get a bigger file. Mm -hmm. And on a couple of them, I actually dropped in some skies. So this guy wasn't quite right. So I kind of blended some new clouds in there, which is really kind of departure from what they sort of stood for, you know, as a magazine, the purest landscape magazine. Well, here's what happened. When I explained all that to him, he went, I got to get back to you. <laughs> well, and so I thought, okay, there goes my chances, right? But he came back to me a couple days later and he said, okay, Joel, here's what we're going to do. Number one, we're going to run this story. And we're going to produce every year now. Uh, Arizona Highways is going to do a issue that's dedicated to photography because they are a photography driven magazine. Yeah. But so we're going to, you know, September, I think it's September, October is going to be the photo issue. We're going to talk about issues in photography in the industry that's happening today. And we believe what you're doing is the future of where photography is going. So you're going to kick this whole thing off. So it was a really beautiful kind of a breakthrough for me in realizing that number one, create images you love and you have a passion for and an audience will discover you and you'll break the rules doing it but in breaking the rules you actually get noticed that's excellent advice and, and i think that it's it, it really takes some faith it to, does to believe that i'm going to stay true to this and that i'm not going to go and second guess myself and to be able to do it so scary thing so um, you have a family you have four sons mm-hmm. so faith like that can get tested you know, because photography businesses is not, even if you're successful, you don't stay consistently no. successful for a long period of time. So how do you sort of strike that balance between the faith that you have in your work and wanting to just pursue it despite 
the fact that the world is not really in line with that yet and the reality that you have to support a family. Well, my wife obviously would love to have me home. Well, I hope. <laughs> there's there's uh, times that maybe she doesn't want me home. But, I mean, but overall, she wants me home. But she knows that if I'm on the road, I'm creating income. The problem was when my kids were little, that was really hard. I was gone 200 days a year, flying around the world doing shoots. Wow, yeah. And it was tough because they would be little. And in, in, in a one-month period or two-month period, you know, a, a child can develop and grow, you know, from, you know, taking their first step to, you know, whatever. And I missed some of that. And I, I have regrets there. But I also know that, number one, there are a lot of people that even go off in the armed forces and are gone for a long period of time from their family. Or if you're on a, a ship and you're three months, you know, on, on the seas, you know, and you're gone. And that's what happens with you know, trying to make a living. We can't always be there every day for our family. And, you know, but I think in what I, the way I looked at it is, I would come back home and I'd really cherish the time with my wife and my kids. And we would just play. My boys and I played constantly when I was home and we'd wrestle and we had a room in, the, in, in, in Colorado, this big basement, and we would just go down there and play. And, and I think they have good memories of that. But yeah, I had to make a sacrifice for that. And my wife knows that for me to survive in this industry, I have to stay current. Staying current, I have to shoot self-assignments. Hmm. And there's projects when I'm going to be gone, too, where, you know, I was just gone for, well, I did, I did a last fall, I was 90 days straight without one day off. So wow. it does take its toll on you. And there's times now where I'm realizing that I have to say no to a project because of my sanity. Yeah, the money's good, but money's not everything. So you have to take that balance and, and realize if I had to, if I was chasing the money thing, I would have never succeeded in what I'm doing today because money has never been really the issue for me. I do know money makes the world go round. And I had a saying in Denver when I was starving that money doesn't guarantee happiness, but being broke guarantees depression. <laughs> <laughs> well, in the early 90s, you did a, a, a personal project on, on the Navajos. Yes. And I think you worked for two years. Two years in two the field, years. yeah. And tell us a little bit about that project. And, and do you ever think about, you know, working on a project of that sort of extensiveness now? Well, I'm, you know... When I was my very first year in, in um, photography class, the, the professor said something to the fact that there are 100,000 students graduating every year with a degree in photography. And that could be 10 times today. I was back in 1978. And I don't know how true that was. But anyways, he made that statement. And he said that only 10% of those really will make a good living or be in the, you know, in the mix of, you know, Photography, whether it's you know if you're if you're geographic or if you're a commercial advertising student mm -hmm. or a, a, a shooter or whatever, and so I remember hearing that and I thought I'm going to be in that ten percent. Okay, <laughs> you know that was my personality, and then he made a comment something like only one percent of those. It was some kind of statement would do a coffee table book, and I thought okay. That's going to be my goal. I'm going to be in that 1% of, you know, achievement. And so over the years, it was always in the back of my little brain that one day I don't want to do a coffee table book. And when I was in D.C., when my wife and I got married, I was in Denver, but we went to D.C. for a couple of years. She had a job out there. And so I started over and uh, pounded the streets and got uh, some great clients and was doing a lot of work. And then one day I said, I'm done. 
I want to go back west. So my wife was joking, and she said, well, what would you do? How, how would we do that? And I said, well, I want to do a book. And uh, I want to do a book on a coffee table book. She said, what would you do it on? I said, well, maybe how about cowboys? She said, well, that's kind of been done, hasn't it? Yeah, I guess it has. Darn it. Okay, how about Indians? <laughs> I'm just I mean, off the top of my head, I'm saying this. And she says, well, what tribe would you work with? And I said, the Hopi. Because they were a very colorful group up in northern Arizona. And she goes, they're kind of a small, tight-knit group, aren't they? They'd be kind of tough. I said, yeah, well, the Navajo are there. They're a little bigger. All right, the Navajo. <laughs> so then she said, well, how would you go about doing that? How would you get a book? And, and I said, well, I get a publisher. She said, well, do you know any? I said, well, I, I photographed a publisher for a magazine article, John Fielder out of West, Westcliff Publishing. Well, maybe he'd do it. She goes, well, why don't you call him? Literally, that's the, in this conversation, it was then a five-minute time period. I picked up the phone, and I called up, got John Fielder on the phone. And I, he, I don't think he knows this story, by the way. But anyways, I got him on the phone, and I said, hey, John, Joel Grimes here. I photographed you a couple years ago. And he goes, oh, yeah, I remember you, Joel. I said, listen, I am putting together a project. I'm going to do a coffee table book on the Navajo. It's going to be the greatest Native American book ever published. Would you be interested he said, yes. <laughs> so within a 10-minute time period, I had my book project. And, but what I didn't realize is how hard it was. And I thought I could do it in a year. It took two years. It beat me up like you wouldn't believe. And the hardest thing was, is I'm an outsider. I came into this, you know, the Navajo. And they were great people, but they were very closed. And they were very cautious about who, you know, who I was and what I was doing. And they had every right to be. And it took a lot to get them to trust who I was. And it was uh, a test of perseverance that I've never had to go through before. Mm. And halfway through the book, I realized I'll never make my money back. Never. I could be a bestseller. I couldn't make my money back. And so I had to say, well, I'm here not for the money. And then there was times when, again, I was so beat up, just being out there, living out of a van and just the emotional strain of being rejected over and over again. I mean, literally, I would ask these Navajo, and they would just, you know, I'd do my little spiel. they go, no. I mean, no expression, just no. Yeah. And then I'd give, I'd give them a little more pitch, no. And then finally, go, they go, all right, maybe. You know, and I'd keep pushing, keep pushing. And I learned a lot about human nature and the fact that they respected the fact that I would be given the no the red light, but eventually I'd you know, pursue them enough to where they'd give me the green light. And so that happens today with people. I bet, I bet with some of these sports figures that you have like 10 minutes to, to shoot, that you probably have to deal with a lot of, a lot of that. So did that experience with the book, with the, you know, photographing the Navajo really inform how you deal with people, especially with those people who've, you know, very reluctant or to, right. to give you what they, what you need as a photographer? Yeah, oh, I, it does. It plays into who I am today, very much so. So good stuff. Though, I, like I said, I wouldn't recommend it. And you talked about doing a project today. Would I do that today? Mm -hmm. I don't, I, you know, I've had a lot of people approach me on book projects from, from that time period of doing that book. And I've had to shake my head no because it takes so much out of you. And so here's what I tell people. You pick, you decide to do a book. Uh, you're stuck with that book for about three years. 
I mean, that concept of, you know, from the shooting to the, to getting it laid out, to mm-hmm. getting it to the, you know, to the forefront of being, you know, in front of people, it's a huge commitment and you better love the project that you pick because it's going to be with you for a while. And if you don't, you're going to, you know, you're going to give up really quick. So what are some of the recent challenges? Maybe not as big as, as that, but I think it's important to challenge yourself so that you don't get stagnant and get bored with, with your own work. So what have you created or, or done recently that really kind of pushed you outside of that that comfort zone, that little box that you can sometimes put yourself in? Well, I got a call from a magazine. Um, to, this is a number of years ago, but when I was starting to do this sports stuff and I was starting to do some edgy portraits, but really I hadn't sort of developed that look yet. But I remember getting a call from an a, a, a upstart magazine. They said, we want you to come out and do some lifestyle fashion stuff, beauty fashion. And I said, well, I don't do beauty fashion. They said, no, we want you to come out. And I said again, I don't do beauty fashion. I mean, that's not who I am, portrait testimonial type of stuff. Mm-hmm. And so I finally said, okay, I can't hurt. They got 13 models, this big, huge mansion. We're going to photograph, you know, they're going to supply all this stuff. I might as well go out. And I remember shooting, and at the end of that day, I realized that, number one, shooting beauty fashion is not easy because you're dealing with a lot of skin, which is tough because I wasn't necessarily lighting skin, lighting a face, yes. Mm -hmm. But lighting skin is a lot harder where skin plays a big role. The, The face, the arms, you know, body positions, all these things. But at the end of it, I was like... This is a lot of fun because it is a lot. It's a challenge. I never thought it would be that much of a challenge. And the images we produced from that first day, and actually we did two days in a row, but that that that, that weekend, still look, I have a few in my in my on my website. But really, that launched me into thinking that you know what, here's an arena that is really hard, but it really upped my lighting skills because now I had to think about other things than just a face. And so I tell people, and my wife says, why do you have to photograph all these beautiful models? And I say, to increase my lighting skills. And she's bought that, by the way. No, but it is, it is throwing me out of my comfort zone into an arena that was very difficult. Because of that, I think now I'm a much greater portrait shooter because I know my lighting so much more. And I've learned a lot in that, you know, three years or four years now that I've been doing this sort of edgy portrait stuff, but also with the mix of beauty fashion. So you see a lot of that in my portfolio now. And part of it is I'm still not a big beauty fashion. I mean, my clients aren't knocking down the doors to get to me, but that arena has upped my skill level. And I think I encourage people to go and try something that's a little bit out of their comfort zone in in terms of just subject matter, doing something that says, wow, that's really hard. And just retouching skin is a whole skill in its own. Oh, yeah. So my retouching skills have increased dramatically because I've been forced to deal with, you know, beauty, you know, retouching. So I, I, I don't know if that would, is what you're trying to no, ask. No, that, that's, yeah. that's excellent. Yeah. Well, my last question is I asked my guests to recommend another photographer for our listeners to discover and explore. And it can be anyone, someone you've long admired or someone you've recently discovered. So who would that be and why? Well, uh, you know, there's so many, okay? And there's a lot of current uh, photographers that I think when I look at their work, I'm just blown away by. And I am. I, and, and, and I think that there's a lot of great shooters out there today. But I think the one that sort of, you, you know, when we talk as, a, you know, I was growing up, Ansel Adams, you know, I was a landscape photographer when I started out. But, but really, Albert Watson 
was yeah. one of those photographers that when I saw his work, and again, when I think I saw his work, I was not shooting people. Um, I was still a landscape shooter. But I remember it making a big impact on me. And then as I revisited over the years, I've realized why. Because he was a commercial uh, shooter, fashion, big time. But he shot imagery on the side. For I mean, some of it was maybe uh, client-driven, but he did a lot of personal assignments, but he did some unbelievable portraits and his, his use of you know light and subject matter and all that really has sort of influenced me and I look at it even today it's what's amazing about looking at say his work or some of the older photographers that have been around before digital today we can say oh I could do that pretty easy you know you know with composites or whatever but he wouldn't have that but still his work was just phenomenal so that's a, uh, one of those shooters that has really impacted me that's wonderful so where can people find out more about uh, Joel Grimes and, and everything that he does? Well, joelgrimes.com is my main website. And then I have a blog that you can go from the website to it, but it's joelgrimesworkshops.com. Okay. Well, thanks, Joel. All right. Excellent. The Candid Frame is supported by donations from people just like you. You can help support the work we do here by visiting the website at thecandidframe.com and contributing using PayPal. You can also support the show by writing a review in the iTunes Music Store or by adding a link to the podcast on your website or blog. The editor for this show is Martin Taylor, who you can find at theothermartintaylor.com. Music is by Kevin McLeod. And this is Ibadian X, and this is The Candid Frame. <laughs>